Good morning. And it is a good morning. You know, one of the things that we look for in our world today is hope. And there is always hope in Christ. Faith, hope, and love. And it's amazing because there are people in our world today without hope. Because they're without Christ. And there are people in Christ who've lost hope because they're not looking to Christ. So if this morning you would describe your situation as hopeless, then that can only mean one thing. You need more of Christ in your heart, in your mind, and in your life. We all have moments where we feel that things are beyond hope, either in our personal lives or in our world or in our culture. But there should never, ever be a time in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ where you lose hope. So this morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. And the thing about this chapter, as we piggyback on chapter 4, when we saw the throne of God and, and, and Christ being worshipped in eternity, this now becomes a moment in eternity, if there is such a thing, where we can see for real, truly see that there is hope in Christ because Christ has the victory over sin and death and he has saved us from hell. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we look to you, in this chapter I pray that we would be super encouraged, and not just encouraged, super encouraged, to know that you, as the Lamb of God, have taken away the sins of the world. That regardless of how dark our circumstances may appear, or how wicked our world may become, there is never a moment where you're not on the throne, and there's never a moment where your plan isn't going perfectly according to your will. And Lord, as we look into the throne room of heaven and see how and why you've accomplished this great victory for those of us who believe in you, may we be encouraged to know that you sit on the throne you died on the cross for our sins, and you rose again on the third day, and that you've conquered sin and death and saved us for all eternity. Lord, speak to us, bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to see the Lamb of God in heaven. The Lamb of God. John the Baptist told us when he saw Jesus coming, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know who the Lamb of God is. But in this vision, and it is a vision, let's understand that it's a vision. There are symbols and there are signs and they have meanings. And those meanings are powerful and the images are fantastic and wonderful. But a lot of this, it isn't so much about the literal vision or the things that happen in it. It's more about what it means for us, for all of us, for the whole world, for all eternity. And it starts with John in heaven, in a vision, receiving a vision from an angel who received it from Jesus. He sees a scroll. He saw a scroll with writing on both sides, and it's sealed with seven consecutive seals. So imagine uh, something rolled up, a scroll rolled up, and as you open it, every, every few paragraphs, if you will, a seal is there, and it has to be broken to open the entire scroll. And that's what we see. Let's read it. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, last book of the Bible, if you're with us today, and you're visiting, and maybe you're not that familiar. We're in the last book, Revelation. And John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne 
a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, you remember there were 24 elders surrounding the throne of God that represent us, the redeemed. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is a moment where in eternity we realize that had Christ not come as a man, died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, ascend into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf, then the day where he comes again to judge the living and the dead, the day where he brings hope and change to our world, that day would never come. If it weren't for the fact that what we're talking about today happened, we would have no hope. We would be dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and we would have no hope of spending eternity with Christ and with one another. There'd be no hope to see those loved ones that have passed on to to be with him and are in glory even now. There'd be no hope that things would ever get better on the earth. There'd be no hope that anything good or wonderful could ever happen in our lives and in our families. There'd be no hope. But don't weep. Can you say amen? amen? Don't weep. John wept because he thought maybe there's no hope. But he was immediately corrected, do not weep. And I want those words, those three words, to stay with you. As we go through darker times in our culture and in our history as a nation and as a world. You can grieve for the state of the world, but do not weep. Why? Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, Pastor Tabak, he can open the scroll. What does that mean for us? Why is that so important? Well, that's what we're going to talk about. First of all, notice the scroll was in the right hand of God. It was seated on the throne. We talked about God seated on his throne last week. And we saw that it was Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But then, unless you understood, why would we be talking about some scroll? We don't do business transactions in this way. In fact, it's kind of crazy. I remember back in the 90s when we closed on our house, I remember uh, sitting down in the lawyer's office, and they took out this stack of paper. Maybe if you've bought a house, you know what I mean. Maybe not recently because things are different. But back then, a stack of paper, I'm like, what's that? Oh, we need your signature. Okay, on the top sheet? No, on about 100 things. So here you are signing, signing, signing. Someone could have slipped in like, you know, an organ transplant card, or a voter registration, and I wouldn't have known. So I'm signing, I mean, signing, signing, and signing, and then you think, oh, okay, we're all good. Oh, no, no, that's just the first stack. So, you know, you you realize that things are a little different today. The last time I, I, I did some business transactions, I didn't even go to the office of my broker. They sent me a document. It was an e sign. Maybe you've done this. And you go in there, and you bring it up, and you you don't even sign, really. You just kind of touch it, and you do this thing. It's so easy now. When I bought a car a few years ago, I went to this super high-tech dealership, and and, uh, when I bought my Buick, I say that because some of you are thinking, oh, he drives a Rolls. (laughs) 
And when I bought my Buick, I, the, the guy behind the counter was looking at this screen that was like a television on his desk. And uh, he was doing all the paperwork, and then he pressed a button, and it turned around and faced me. I didn't even need to get on the other side of the desk. Oh, I just need your signature. Boop. And it was done. Things are a lot easier for us today because everything is, you know, sort of electronic, and we, and we, we have a different way of doing things. But back in the ancient world, when you bought a piece of property, you needed to have a title deed to prove that the, that the property was yours. And, and because they didn't have, you know, cybersecurity and they didn't have all the things that we have today, there needed to be a method by which you could redeem the property. That is, you'd purchase property and then you had to be able to prove that it wasn't forged. You had to prove that this really was your property. So here's what they did. And by the way, these deeds of purchase were very common. So anyone reading this in the ancient world will know immediately that they're talking about a deed of purchase. Like we have a title for our cars or for our homes that's what we're talking about. Now, deeds of purchase at that time were sealed scrolls, as I've mentioned. They, and they had the fine print, because there's always fine print. Have you noticed that? They had the fine print on the reverse side. So the major issues were on the front side, and then they put all the details on the back. And so it was all sealed up. And you're thinking, well, how can you read it if it was sealed, right? Good question. Well, that's because there was an unsealed copy. There was an unsealed copy that was reviewed during its purchase. So everyone had access to the information. So you got two copies, one that was not sealed that you could look at that established the transaction. But then they had this sealed copy that was held to authenticate its future redemption. That is, so if you borrowed money or if you were paying it off, you could say, I bought this property. And when it was time to take ownership of that property... You would have a document that was sealed. We do this today. We have seals on documents. I remember when we incorporated the church back in 2003. I remember going to the courthouse in Newark and having to have seals on everything to make sure that the documents were established. I have copies of those documents. But when I go to a bank to open an account, I generally have to show the original, the sealed copy. So it's not that different than what we do today. So you had the unsealed copy, which was reviewed during its purchase, the sealed copy, which was held to authenticate its future redemption, which everyone got to see the seals open, and you knew the document had not been altered, that the document was real. It wasn't forged. And by the way, witnesses were always present to validate the purchase and the redemption. So witnesses would say, okay, we read the document, everybody agrees, great. And then when it was redeemed... and. Basically, what redeemed means is bought back. You know, when you pay off your house, if you pay off your house, you redeem it. When you pay off your car, you redeem it. You're, you're paying it off. It's what Christ did for us. He paid our debts. He paid with his blood on the cross for our sins. So he redeemed us back to God. We were in debt. That is, we had a debt we couldn't pay. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And it's a gift. Because you see, it would be like you owed a million dollars and you're thinking, I can never pay that off. And then someone else comes along and says, I got this, I'll pay it off. You didn't pay it off, but somebody did for you. That's, that's the redemption that we have in Christ. And when he said from the cross, after he had suffered and was about to die, he said, it is finished. In the Greek, to telestai means 
paid in full. So he could have just as well said, and probably did, paid in full. It is finished, paid in full. We were redeemed at that moment that Christ paid the price for our sins. So, what do you think the title deed has to do with? We're calling him the Lamb of God. We're talking about redemption. Of course, we're not talking about God purchasing a piece of property in Miami. We're talking about God redeeming us for all eternity. And the symbols are used that would have been common to the people alive at that time. Now, Jeremiah, and you can read about this in Jeremiah 32, had a very similar experience. He he received a very similar sealed document when he purchased property. So that's how we know that this isn't just a story, that this actually happened. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah 32 that when he purchased a piece of property, he went through the same process. But again, it was a very common process. It's the way business transactions were dealt with at that time, the way they were handled. So the sealed document that's in the right hand of God is a deed of purchase representing all creation. For you see, Christ died to save us from our sins and redeem all creation for himself. This deed is in God's right hand because he is the rightful owner of all creation. Scriptures tell us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is a mistaking way of thinking that once upon a time, God was the rightful owner of all creation, and then he gave that creation to Adam and Eve, and they lost it to Satan. That's not what happened. This world does not belong to Satan. Oh, it might seem that way sometimes. It might look like that, but no, the the world, the earth, all of creation belongs to the creator who is Christ. And, And that's why we have hope, because we know God, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the owner of all creation because he created it. But the problem is that while this deed is in God's right hand, and he's the rightful owner of all creation, and he never lost it to Satan... Adam and Eve did sin against God, but God did not lose ownership of all creation. It's so important to understand this because Adam was given rightful ownership of all God's creation. He had ownership because God gave it to him and dominion over all that God had made, all that was on the earth. But he forfeited his right. He forfeited his right to redeem creation because he sinned. And because of sin, and he died, because of death, because of sin and death, Adam is not worthy to open the scroll or redeem all of creation. So it would be as if you inherited a piece of property, and you had this sealed scroll, but you had no justification to open it. So you go to redeem the property, and they say, no, 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 you're not worthy. You can't do it. That's where we were before Christ died on the cross. We were in a situation where, yes, God owns all things in creation. Man was supposed to have dominion over it. We were supposed to co-reign in that way, but we lost that because Adam forfeited his right. And because he forfeited that, we were without hope. But we have hope in Christ. So you understand that's the gospel message. So no one was found worthy to break these seven seals and open the scroll. 
And this angel, mighty angel, asks if anyone's, open, uh, anyone's worthy to open the scroll in, in verse 2. And of course, uh, no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to open the scroll. Now the phrase under the earth would be a reference to people who have died and descended into what the Jews called Sheol, what we call Hades, and is sometimes referred to as hell, the place of the dead. So there's no one in heaven, okay, so that would be the angelic host, no one on the earth, there would be anyone who's alive, or under the earth, anyone that ever lived, who was worthy to open the scroll. So yes, apart from Christ, there is no hope. Buddha can't help you out. Muhammad can't help you out. No one else in this whole world can open that scroll except for Christ. And that's why we understand that there is no other way in which a person can be saved. If you think that there's another way around this, there isn't. It's Christ and Christ alone. Oh, that sounds so exclusive. It sounds so discriminatory and prejudiced. What are you saying? Are you saying, Pastor Tim, that people who aren't in Christ can't spend eternity with Christ? Exactly. Well, that's offensive. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. It's just the truth. That's the truth of the gospel. And that's why we're here today, worshiping Christ, because he's done all of this for us. And we want the world to understand what he's done for us so that we can celebrate together for all eternity. So, though Adam had forfeited his right to redeem creation through his own sin and death, mankind, no longer able to redeem God's creation, had hope in one man. Only someone who's referred to in the scriptures as a worthy kinsman, that is a relative who is worthy, who has the power to redeem, only a worthy kinsman can open the deed and redeem God's creation. So an angel can't do it. God did not become an angel. God became a man. So it's important to understand the reason he became a man, and we'll see this in a minute, is because a man needed to redeem the earth. Because a man lost it. Now, God still owns all of creation, but he lost the right to redeem it. So, John wept, because there was no one found who was worthy to open the scroll. But it's just, it's just momentary, because one of the 24 elders, and again, these 24 elders represent us in heaven, assured John that Jesus is worthy to break the seven seals and open the scroll. And if you don't think he's talking about Jesus, wait, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's clear because Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David because he's the son of David. But it's interesting that he's not just called the root. He's sometimes called the branch. He's the root of David. But wait a minute, that would imply that he came before David. But he's the son of David. The branch, which implies he came after David. Yes. And yes. Because unto us a child, a son was born, a child was given. The son was born. But long, uh, a child was, was born. But long before that, a son was given. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But that happened in eternity because Christ is eternal. From the beginning, these things have happened. So, what a wonderful picture of the gospel. You see, here's, here's the thing. If you look into heaven, you're going to see God and you're going to see our hope in God and in Christ. And that's what we're seeing. 
And that's how the book of Revelation starts out. Before it deals with all the cataclysms and tribulations on the earth, the the writer, the, the vision lets us know, you don't need to freak out and worry. Freak out, that's kind of a a term that some of you may be familiar with. But don't do it. Don't find yourself in a place where you're worried all the time about the state of the world when, by the way, Christ has it under control. And that might help some of you who've had a rough week. So, Jesus is the root of David because he's the creator of all things. But he's also the son of David because when he became a man, he was descended from the line of David, who is of the tribe of Judah. So we know who this is. This is Jesus. He's triumphed over sin and death and is worthy to open the scroll. Don't worry. Don't weep. God has it under control. Now we see the next thing, and it's the next part of this vision, because John sees a lamb. He sees a lamb that looked like it had been slain. Again, vision with symbolism, right? You're with me. He's the Lamb of God. The the Lamb looks like the Lamb had been slain. Well, that should be pretty obvious to you what we're talking about, who we're talking about. Jesus saw a Lamb that looked as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Look what it says. I saw a Lamb. Again, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures, which we talked about last week. These are angelic creatures. And the elders, which we've talked about already, which are us. And he, that is the lamb, and again, these are symbols, had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God, sent out into all the earth. Now, let's just stop there a minute because we're now introduced in vision to Jesus, who's also sitting on the throne. So it's kind of hard because you look and you say, but wait a minute, I thought Jesus is God on the throne. Yes. And he's also the lamb of God. Yes. See, a lot of us, we, we, we just can't. We just can't even begin to imagine. How could God be on the throne and on the earth at the same time? Well, then we're introduced to the Holy Spirit who's able to be all places at once. And we know he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you're thinking, well, that, that, I don't understand that. Of course you don't. How could you? If God were small enough for you and I to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. Please understand, you're never going to understand God. And when you try to explain him, you're going to get yourself and everyone else in trouble. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts above our thoughts. You cannot wrap your brain around the nature of God. What do you do then, Pastor Tim? What do you do when you realize you just can't understand God? Well, that's what we do when we worship and praise God. When we praise God, we say, I don't even know. Who is God? I know about him, but oh my goodness, I know God personally, but I I don't know a thing about him. There's, There's so much. I just need to praise God. You are worthy. And what's worship? Worship is surrendering our hearts to God. That's the appropriate response when your mind just goes, in considering these things. And and by the way, we're going to see that's the exact same response in heaven. Let's talk about the symbols. Because the rest of Scripture helps us to understand what these symbols mean and are trying to tell us through the vision. First of all, John described the Lamb who was standing in the center of the throne of God as if he had been slain, but clearly was no longer dead, but alive. I mean, this is Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. He does bear the marks of his earthly suffering for all eternity. What? Yeah, remember when he rose from the dead in the Gospels? And his disciples saw him, and he showed them his scars? 
See, you and I are going to spend eternity in perfect bodies. And Christ will spend an eternity with the marks of his love for you. The scars. You you would think that, that God would not do that. But forever we'll be able to see the the nail prints in his wrists or hands and feet. And forever we'll be able to see just exactly how much he loves us. I remember we used to sing a, a little song years ago. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. Well, he was in the center of God's throne in this vision, encircled by the four living creatures. Again, we'll talk more about them, but we talked about them last week, so we'll pass on that for now. And encircled by the 24 elders. And of course, Jesus is at the right hand of God as a glorified man. Yes, he's God, but he's also at the right hand of God. The scriptures tell us this in multiple places, in the book of Acts, Hebrews, and in the book of Revelation, that he is at the right hand of the throne of God. As a glorified man, it's so important you realize when Christ as God eternal became a man, he never went back to being something other than a man. He never gave up his humanity and he died and he rose again and he's still today a glorified man and he has the kind of body that you and I will have for all eternity except it's scarred. Do you understand that? That today, a man sits on the throne of God. Just take that in as much as you can. A man sits on the throne of God. A glorified man sits on the throne of God. He is God, the Son of God, seated on God's throne, and yet a man as well. And he's described as having seven horns and seven eyes. Now, I want to give you the symbolism here. Because all of this represents the sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're told there, right? We're, we're given that interpretation. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit of God sent out into all the earth. What we're being told through this vision, because you really can't see the spirit, we're given symbols that help, to help us to understand that the Holy Spirit is upon him as well. Now, remember that God, the triune God, God the Father, sent God the Son to the earth as a man. He was born as a child. And then he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove, not as a dove, like a dove, when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So at that moment, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, working in concert as the triune God, were represented in a way where you had God the Father saying from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You had God the Son as a man being baptized in submission to God the Father and the Holy Spirit coming down from heaven, anointing Christ to do the work that God the Father had called him to do. That's big. That's a lot, isn't it? We could stop right there, just have like a five-minute moment of silence and we could go home very full. But the seven horns and the seven eyes are used to describe the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And just like Christ is a man for all eternity, he's anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit for all eternity. So, you know, they're one. 
But it's given to us in a way that we can understand, even though that's about all we can understand. Let's look at this a little bit more closely. There's not seven spirits sent into the, all, the, all the earth. There's only one spirit. The word for seven, there's sevenfold. And we've talked about this earlier a couple of times already, how it describes God's work as the Holy Spirit, for God is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit baptized Jesus, and it's described as seven horns and seven eyes because of this. Jesus, who's anointed by the power of the Spirit, is perfect in power. Horns are a sign of power in the scriptures. Many times you can just look, when when horns are mentioned in the book of Daniel and other places, it represents power. And so what we see here is Jesus is perfect in power. What's What's a fancy way to say that? What's the fancy way to say that Jesus is perfect in power with the seven horns? Oh, that he's omnipotent which means he's all-powerful. Seven is a number of perfection and completion. A horn is a sign of power. So Jesus, anointed by God the Holy Spirit, is perfect in power. He's all-powerful. Amen? Well, what about the eyes? Well, Jesus is perfect in knowledge. Eyes represent the ability to see all things. Without eyes, you can't see Well, we learn that he has seven eyes. Again, the number of perfection, eyes mean knowledge and understanding. Jesus is perfect in knowledge. We have a fancy word for that too. It's omniscient. It means he knows all things. He's all powerful. He knows all things. And I know what you're thinking. Well, there's one last element of God's character and nature that we haven't talked about. And if you notice, it describes the anointing of the Holy Spirit in this way. The sevenfold Spirit of God sent out or sent into all the earth. Now, how could God be in all the earth at once? Well, he can because of God the Holy Spirit. He's omnipresent. That's another fancy word. So you have omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, and it basically means he is in all places at once. Ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God. We need an amen. Have you got hope this morning? Unconvincing. Have you got hope this morning? Amen. Amen. Yes. Okay. So what happens next? Look at verse 7. In verse 7 of chapter 5, we read that the Lamb, he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb And each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Let's just stop there for a minute. A vision, a picture to help us to understand, just like the seven eyes and seven horns, help us to understand who God is because they have deeper meaning. There are more symbols here as well. Jesus, as a man, returned mankind to their place as the heirs of all creation through that redemptive process. And that's why he needs to open up the scroll. Because in opening up the scroll, he's redeeming us and all of creation. But the reason that Jesus is worthy is because he paid the price for sin and redeemed mankind for all eternity. So we know he's worthy. We know what he's about to do. How did he do it? Well, we've talked about it. I'm going to repeat it again, just in case you missed it. His death on Calvary was payment for that sin. And that was taken care of already. Remember, it is finished. This isn't the finishing of that transaction. 
Remember I told you when you purchased something, there was a purchase and a redemption? Well, the purchase took place nearly 2,000 years ago. But the redemption hasn't taken place yet. That's why when you turn on cable network news, you think this world is going crazy. This is why when you see the nightly news and you see all the crime and the the issues we have in our world, you think, where's God in all this? I thought Christ was in control of all things. Well, he is. He purchased this creation, this world, by his blood, but he has yet to redeem it, and that's what we're seeing here predicted in heaven. So that's what we're waiting for. I'm not waiting for Christ to die on the cross for my sins, and neither are you. We've already been purchased to God, but we have yet to be redeemed in that way. This world has yet to be redeemed. Okay, we're not just saved from sin, which is what the cross means to us. We're going to be redeemed to God as heirs of all creation. That's our hope for all eternity. And all of heaven witnessed Jesus' redemption of mankind in this vision. So there are witnesses, like there always were when there was a redemption, in heaven witnessing the redemption. And I'm glad to tell you, I believe that those of us who are in Christ that will die before this takes place, and it's hard to say will take place because it's in heaven, but in our understanding will take place, and, and those of us who will be raptured and caught up to the throne of God, all of us will be gathered like the 24 elders around the throne to witness, we get to witness this happening in eternity. Have you ever been a witness? Maybe in a court case or perhaps uh, you signed the, the paperwork when someone got married, you were one of the witnesses. A witness is someone that says, yep, yep, it happened. I saw it. They said I do. They're married. Yep, I saw the transaction. It happened. You know what? That's what we get to do in eternity. We get to sit there and watch and say, yep, amen. And we see these, these redeemed in heaven, who I believe are us and the, all the angelic creation, basically saying amen, and they do say amen, and they're praising God. Why are they praising God? Oh, you could praise God for a million reasons, but because he will, and is in this vision, redeeming the earth and all creation. By the way, there's a scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that says, For the joy that was set before him, Christ, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and the cross was an extremely shameful death. The kind of death that we would describe as the death of a criminal, like the electric chair. There's nothing noble or glorious about the death of someone in the electric chair or by lethal injection. We think of that as a very shameful death. The cross was such a thing. But what was the joy? What was the joy that, that he saw? What was the, the joy that was set before him such that he endured the cross despising its shame? It's you. You are the joy that Christ had in his heart when he died for you on the cross, when he suffered and died for you on the cross. And this is the moment that the cross makes possible in eternity. And we've already seen how John described the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they responded much the same way that we would and will when we're there. In verse 8, we read it already. It says, When he had taken it, the, 20, uh, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now, it's interesting because the word for new, it doesn't mean a song you don't know. It's a song that you can now sing. 
right? There are songs that you know that you can't sing until they really apply to you. Like they say, you can't sing the blues until you suffered a little. There are things that you can say but can't really mean because they they really haven't happened yet. When this day comes in eternity, these words won't be new in our understanding. They'll be new in that they will be in effect. Are you with me? You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. See, you could sing that right now. We have the words. Everybody does. But can you really sing it right now? Can you really sing those words? Have they gone into effect? No. Clearly. But that's why we call it hope. See, when something is a hope, that means... It's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. You know, I hope something will happen. I hope. And if you put your hope in anything other than God, you're going to be disappointed. We all know what that's like. But when you put your hope in Christ, we know that the Holy Spirit has poured out hope into our hearts through Jesus Christ. We have this hope in earthen vessels. The scripture talks about hope, 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 hope. And the reason we have hope is because we know this day will come. But sadly, sadly, in some ways, it hasn't happened yet. But not so sadly, because there are many who need to come to Christ before it happens. And we'll need to suffer a little while longer in this world until God decides to set it right and redeem the earth. But I warn you, because when the redemption comes, there will be years of suffering on the earth. And we'll see that starting next week. You see, the redemption process is going to be a painful one for this world. Not for us, but for those that reject Christ. It's going to be a very difficult time. It's why we call it Daniel's 70th week. It's why we call it seven years of tribulation. There are three and a half years described as the beginning of sorrows, and another three and a half years described as the great tribulation. doesn't sound good because it's not good at all, and you'll see that. And if you pick up the study next week with us, and you hadn't read all of this, you would just think, oh my goodness, what a depressing message. So you need to keep coming back to this hope, because the seals are going to open, things are going to happen, but all of it brings us to the redemption of God's creation. It's a good thing. How can you say it's a good thing? People are going to die. It's a good thing. You know, we're going to go through some difficult times. We're going through difficult times in our world today. And you're tempted to think there's no hope. Wait a minute. The difficulty that we're going through, even in our world today, will yield fruit. God is going to use the challenges and the trials and the difficulties, wars, rumors of wars, all of the things we're going to go through in this world, even before these things begin to happen, for a good outcome. Oh, but my 401k went down. Put your treasure in heaven, where moth and rust cannot take it away from you, where thieves can't take it from you. Your problem, if you're hopeless right now because you've been watching the market, actually it's up right now, up, down, up. You know what, you know what I realized years ago when I used to watch professional sports? If my team won on Sunday, I was happy on Monday. If my team lost on Sunday, I was depressed on Monday. You know what happened when I stopped watching this crazy stuff that I just have no patience for anymore? And not the sport. I love the sport, but the, the, the whole thing. 
the culture, the wokeness of it all. You know what happened? I'm happy on Monday. And you know why? Because I went to church on Sunday. And I didn't ruin it by watching some crazy game in the afternoon. So if you're still watching football, I'll pray for you. So all I know is that when I see this description, I understand that God's plan is a good plan, and it includes suffering and difficulty and trials and disasters and all kinds of things and that I wouldn't choose, but I know are necessary. Have you ever noticed things, things probably have to get, I thought they were pretty bad already, but things are going to probably have to get a lot worse for people to wake up. Everybody's in a fog. You know, not everybody that we have eyes to see, but the rest of the world is deceived. Well, how could they not see? Well, they're, they're blinded to the truth. What wakes them up? Suffering, difficulties, awful circumstances. I don't ask for it, but I know it's necessary. And if God brings it, it certainly is. So that helps us to understand, oh, you mean there's hope that going through these difficult circumstances will ultimately correct things? Yes. Hope in Christ and in no one else. So, John describes these four living creatures, the 24 elders, and they worship the Lamb after he takes the scroll from the right hand of God. And basically you see here that Jesus, the Son of God, is worshipped in heaven. He's not on equal terms with anyone else. He's God himself in human glorified flesh. And the cherubim and the seraphim, all of the the angels and the redeemed in heaven, they bow before him. And and they each have a harp. Now, the the symbol there, they have a harp. A harp is a stringed instrument. It's used to praise. So there's music in heaven. And they're holding golden bowls full of incense. Well, now, in the scriptures, the Old Testament showed us that when they went into the temple, when they went into the tabernacle, the Jews, the high priests, they would offer incense inside. They offered the animals outside on the brazen altar. They would go inside the tabernacle or inside the temple, and there was an altar before the veil, and it was called the altar of incense. And on that altar, we'll see this again in in, in future studies, they would offer incense. Incense could make its way. Have you ever smelled incense? It's pretty awesome, actually. It really is. Some people don't like it, but it's an interesting smell. But here's the thing. You know when you've smelled incense. A couple of months ago, Michelle and I were taking some of the kids, I think it was just Lily actually, and we went over, we took a little walk, and we went into one of the churches around the corner. It was a nice day. We walked inside, and as soon as you opened up the door, incense. Do you know why incense is used? Because it represents prayer. Because you see, back in the ancient times, uh, the, the Jews couldn't get behind the veil, because they weren't allowed to enter the presence of God. That veil is now torn, amen? We can enter. But before that, they would, the, the altar of incense would be there. They'd offer the incense, and the smell of the incense could make its way. The smoke could make its way around and through the veil into the presence of God. That's what you can do through prayer. You unhappy at the ballot box? Pray. Offer incense to God. That's what we do. You don't have to actually offer incense. It represents prayer. <laughs> so... There are some people today that are offering incense, and God bless them, but it's more important to pray. It's an outward symbol of something that's spiritual, and in that sense, it's a good thing. But don't put your hope in incense. Put your hope in God through prayer. Now, the thing we see here, there is worship music in heaven, played on stringed instruments, by the way. Sorry, Johann Sebastian Bach. No organ. 
The incense represents the prayers of the saints. I believe a prayer that could easily be described as incense is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Let's continue. They also sang a new song about Jesus, the Lamb of God. We've read it already. They declared him worthy to open the scroll because he was slain. They declared that his blood purchased and redeemed men from all mankind for God. They declared that these redeemed men and women have been made a kingdom and priests to serve God. And they declared that these redeemed men and women will reign on the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. And this is hope and change. This is what we're looking for. And then John described how the innumerable angels in heaven worship the Lamb. Look at verse 11 with me. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Do the math. A lot. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Now, what I like about that is it makes it very clear. The angels worship God in heaven. They encircle the throne, the four living creatures, and all of us. So you have the cherubim around the center of the throne. We are around them and the angels around us. So there is a distinction between the four living creatures as angelic creation and the angels that we call messengers. And we're somewhere like before that. We're we're like right there. Now, they sang a song about Jesus, the Lamb of God. By the way, a little bit of trivia. You know the last time angels sang? Oh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, at the birth of Christ. No, they, they, they spoke. They didn't sing. It just says they said glory to God in the highest and peace to men on earth. They said that. The last time they sang was before sin came into the world. In the book of Job, chapter 38. They sang and they'll sing again. They declared him worthy because he was slain. Worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Worthy. And then John described how every creature, and animal lovers love to quote this verse because they say, look, there are animals in heaven. I don't know that that's true. I don't know that it's not true. I just know this, that every creature worshiped God seated on the throne and on the lamb, uh, uh, on the throne and the lamb. And here's what we read in verses 13 and 14. Then I heard every creature on heaven and on earth, or in heaven and on earth, And under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Okay, we'll try it again. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a beautiful picture. You feeling hopeful? I'm going to ask Pastor Russ to come up. In these last two verses, John described how every creature worshiped God. Now, it could just very well mean human beings. But every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them sang. And and those who are good, evil, the saved, the unsaved, they're all going to worship God because every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And they sang a song about God and Jesus the Lamb of God. They praised him who sits on the throne and him who was slain. They praised him who is worthy to receive praise, honor, glory, and power for all eternity. They praised him. Do you praise him? 
I think one of the problems we have and why we sometimes suffer from depression is we don't praise God. Here's a little challenge. But notice the four living creatures, they agreed with the songs of the angels and every creature. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped God and Jesus and the Lamb of God. Uh, do you praise? The reason I ask is because here's a little challenge going into the new year. I challenged you last week to turn off the phones. And by the way, I, I truly, I understand some of you guys use the phone as, a, as your Bible. Why, I don't know. But if you do, that's fine. You can leave your phone on. But turn off all of the alerts. Turn off all of the things that would distract you if you're going to do that. Me, I, I just love my Bible. But I'll say this. We talked about eliminating distractions. I want to challenge you with this. The best way to experience God on a Sunday morning is to praise and worship him. If you come in with five minutes left in our praise and worship service, you missed 10 to 15 minutes of praise and worship. I don't know why we think it's okay to do that. I'm not being mean. I just am asking a question. Why do we think it's okay to come late to church? Oh, pastor, now I'm bummed out. You won't be if you praise. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are worthy. We love you. We want to praise you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. We understand the gospel message. We've heard it over and over again. If there's any here today that, that need to just submit their hearts to that message, give their lives to you, I pray they would in their own hearts right now through praise and worship, through the singing of this song. May these words bring us to a place where we cry out to you and say, Lord, save. Lord, save us. That's hallelujah. That's what it means. Save us. Hosanna. Save us. Praise you. Hallelujah. Save us. Lord, may we cry out to you. May every heart here make that commitment to worship and praise you starting now and for all eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.